Scarlet stood before the court An attorney in a suit Swore an oath to tell the truth Scarlet's Welcome back to For the Defense. I'm David Oscar Marcus, your host. And as you know, in our first two seasons, we spoke to the great criminal trial lawyers about some of their most fascinating trials. Uh, we ended with an episode with Judge Jed Rakoff from the Southern District of New York. Judge Rakoff was great and had lots of different thoughts on the criminal justice system. And I was inspired by speaking to him. And so I decided to do a short mini season with three more judges. And in this mini season, we'll have Chuck Breyer. He's a district judge from the Northern District of California. We'll have Robin Rosenbaum from the 11th Circuit. Um, Her name keeps getting brought up as a potential Supreme Court nominee for a Democratic president. And we'll also have the chief judge of the 11th Circuit, William Pryor, who actually was a shortlister for the Supreme Court with President Trump. We're going to lead off with District Judge Charles Breyer, the younger and much cooler brother of Supreme Court Justice Stephen Breyer. You'll hear Judge Breyer's great sense of humor, his compassion, his thoughts on the criminal justice system. I think it's really interesting and uh, an in-depth look at a behind-the-scenes view from an actual judge who does sentencing, who hears trials, and who sees defense lawyers and prosecutors every day in For the Defense. Next. All right. Well, welcome back to For the Defense. I am really excited and happy today. We have Judge Charles Breyer on the show. And Judge Breyer hails all the way from San Francisco, the Northern District of California. He's on the district judge there, uh, district bench there. And he's got an amazing background. He's He's done so many different things in the law from Uh, being on the Watergate task force to being an assistant district attorney. And he's also a unicorn because he is a actual former criminal defense lawyer who is also on the bench as well. And we're hearing a lot about that in the news these days. So welcome to the show, Judge. Thank you. It's uh, not only an honor, uh, I'm looking forward to it. So uh, thank you so much. No, this is going to be fun. So, So I wanted to start out and just talk about Watergate for a second, because I find that so fascinating that you were on the Watergate uh, prosecution team. And I note that uh, we have a local connection as well. You, you were on that team with John Sale from Miami, who's a close friend of both of ours. So I should probably start out and ask you if you have any good John Sale stories. Well, but none that would be suitable for a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's too bad. Maybe we'll have to talk offline uh, <laughs> about it. Um, there was a trial of John Ehrlichman um, and and he was, of course, counsel to Nixon. And I, when I was doing some research last night about the case, I noted there was a Miami connection to that as well. The trial lawyer for Ehrlichman was a guy named uh, William Frades, a uh, trial lawyer down here who was before my time, but I heard had a, a pretty uh, crazy reputation for being a trial lawyer. Well, uh, the, uh, the, I, I prosecuted a group called the Plumbers, uh, in which uh, uh, Ehrlichman actually uh, uh, approved the break-in of Daniel Ellsberg's psychiatrist's office in Los Angeles. And that actually was my tie to Watergate because they had put, Archibald Cox had put together a, a group of hot shots, you know, from the Southern District of New York. Uh, and uh, John Sale was one of those hot shots. <laughs> and uh, they realized that they had a, uh, a case involving a California burglary. And they didn't have anybody from California uh, on their uh, on their team. So uh, they reached out and I was at a point, uh, I had been a district attorney for assistant district attorney uh, for about uh, five years. Uh, it was a great job because I learned how to try cases. I had about 50 or so uh, jury trials. And you do actually learn how to try a case uh, as a DA or as a public defender. Uh, uh, you don't learn to be a litigator. You learn how to be a trial lawyer. So true. And uh, so I had that experience and uh, Watergate came along. And, and uh, I do recall going into the district attorney and telling him that I was going to leave the office and and go and and to Washington and work on Watergate, to which his response was, oh, that's a, 
That's a terrible mistake. It's a dead end. It'll get you nowhere. <laughs> That'll be the end of your career. I mean, yeah, a whole parade of horrors. Thank goodness uh, you didn't listen to none him. None of it came to pass. Yeah, uh, seriously. Um, you you mentioned a couple things there that that are interesting to me. One is um, that they overcame their East Coast bias and and hired someone from California. That's that's always surprising, right? Yes, that uh, <laughs> that was. I had to learn a whole other language. <laughs> <laughs> right, and and the other thing you mentioned, which is so true, which is you know, you get so much more trial experience in the state court system these days than in the federal court system. Um, so, so few federal litigators have actual trial experience, um, so, and, and people, for whatever reason, look down on, on state practice. I always tell people that's a great place to, to oh, get trials. It's, it's a wonderful thing. Uh, uh, above all, uh, other than, I mean, in addition to getting experience, it teaches a lawyer what I call proportionality. Uh, what, what, what is, you know, that the hardest job, and we'll, I'm sure, get into this, is, is sentencing, because right. uh, it, there are no right answers to sentence. It's not like the statute of limitations or the rule against perpetuities or something like that. Uh, 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 it is, it is uh, all a question of judgment. Maybe most of it's a question of judgment. Uh, and uh, 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 part of the judgment, part of the ingredients is, well, what would happen to a defendant if he had committed the same crime and was prosecuted by the state rather than by the federal government? What happens? Right. And after all, we have, I would say, approximately uh, 60 to 70,000 uh, federal defendants uh, every year. Uh, the state courts have millions. Right. Uh, sad, but, but true. And so you would just think, well, where, you know, in those cases in which the crimes overlap, and I would say that that was an, has been an increasing trend. That's right. Much to my horror, by the way, but it's been an increasing trend. And uh, 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 you don't want somebody to get, a sentence so disproportional uh, in the federal system to what that person would have gotten in the state court system. It's, it's, because then it's, it's almost a whim. It's almost the, the, the prosecutors just judge, oh, I'd like to take that case. No, it's, it's a great point. And, and I talked to Rakoff a little bit about how do we get these federal prosecutors a sense of proportionality. His, his proposal is have prosecutors act as defense lawyers for some time, which is an interesting proposal. I'm all for it because it's important for prosecutors to actually have represented a person before they prosecute them. But it's also, I always find interesting to speak to federal prosecutors who have been state court prosecutors. First, they always seem to be so much more um, reasonable and understanding about the types of crimes they see, because they've seen it all in state court, right? They've seen the spectrum of crimes. Whereas when you deal with a, pro a federal prosecutor who, who's always been a federal prosecutor, they think um, some of these crimes are the, the crime of the century. Uh, they, they don't have a sense of that proportionality yeah. you speak of. And, and, you know, you can't fault them. I mean, after all, right. a number of them are, are quite young. Of course, everybody now is looking quite young <laughs> to me. But, uh, uh, you know, you're talking about people who are maybe in their late 20s or 30s uh, and... <clears throat> You know, they haven't had that experience of five or 10 years in a state court system. Uh, Jed Rakoff, who I think is absolutely a fabulous judge. I mean, he is he is one of the real jewels of, of the judiciary because he thinks about things and he thinks about things uh, not in any sort of confined in the box way. He just questions uh, the wisdom of a lot of things that we just take for granted. I think he's I think he's remarkable. Uh, and that's an interesting idea. Uh, my question, of course, is that is that I think you only really get experience uh, if you do this repeatedly. Right. Uh, sure. You know, a one off uh, one offs are very dangerous because a one off leads to somebody saying, oh, I know that. Oh, <laughs> yeah. I, I've done that. You know, <laughs> the problem is right, and we're going to talk about this in a minute. There's so few trials left that they do become these one-offs, yeah. um, and, and we'll get to that in a minute. Before we do, 
one of the things that I wanted to, to at least start off with is there's such a difference between the civil and criminal cases that we see. In, in civil cases, of course, you know, you're judging discovery disputes, motions to dismiss, motions for summary judgment. We get very little of, of those things in criminal cases. Um, you have to almost either plead or wait for trial to litigate your case. And, and I read one of your opinions about uh, the YPO case where um, there was a motion to dismiss and you granted it. And, and it involved um, a person who got some inf inside information from this YPO group and traded on it, made a lot of money um, and got prosecuted. And, and your order basically said, well, you know, sounds wrong, but is it a crime to do that? And, and we don't see much of that in our federal courts where, where people are challenging the stretching of those criminal statutes. Well, I think that that, that case, of course, led itself well to a pretrial determination. I would, I would, and, and there have been others too uh, that I've seen where, uh, where, where it doesn't fit. The interesting thing about criminal law, in my experience, is uh, there is a fit. There is a fit between the conduct and the law. And where there is a, a stretching of that in order to make a fit, uh, raises an issue in criminal law that you don't really have in civil law, which is notice and due process. Right. And <clears throat> so that's where that's sort of the start of the inquiry. Now, I would say the reason that there have been so few cases uh, that are decided uh, uh, initially by way of motion is that most of the criminal offenses charged are, I wouldn't say run of the mill, but fit easily into the rubric. Well, let and, me take you on on become, that. And then they become factually, then the question always is, well, what about the facts? Like, are the facts something that would take it out of right. the, the normal way of looking at it? And the problem is that's very hard to see pretrial. Exactly. I think that's the point. And that's the one I was just going to raise, which is even in the case, in the fact pattern with that YPO case, and you note in your order, Similar fact patterns have come up and other judges have said, well, let's let it get to the jury and see what they do because we have to develop the facts. And, and because there's no depositions, requests for interrogatories, those factual developments in criminal law, which I have to say, I find bizarre, you know, when people are fighting about money, even whatever the threshold is now to get into federal court, you get the full discovery. You see every document, you get every question, every deposition. When it's somebody's liberty, if they're looking at 20 years, you can't take depositions. Most people think if you tell my mom or someone off the street about this, they say, wait, what? You don't get a deposition in a, in a criminal case in federal court. They find it bizarre. Your mom is in favor of depositions? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, she, my mother was always opposed to it, <laughs> along with due process, by the way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I wouldn't want my mom on the jury, okay? So, 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 so let's say that. Um, but but it is weird, right? I mean, we it seems like a strange situation where we don't get to develop the facts until a trial in a criminal case. It is it is uh, it, it, it does have that anomaly, but I think there are reasons for it. So I'm not I'm not as concerned about that. I uh, uh, well, because you dismissed the case, so you're willing well, to do yeah, it. That's <laughs> one way. So, so others judges, may have been concerned. <laughs> well, you know, in, in another case, um, my friend Sean Hecker tried before you uh, a recent criminal case. You granted a Rule 29. That's U.S. versus Bogoki. And, and there you get again, you said this. The government has pursued a criminal prosecution on the basis of conduct that violated no clear rule or regulation, was not prohibited by the agreements between the parties and indeed was consistent with the party's understanding of the arm's length relationship in which they operated. I mean, great stuff. Had to get to a trial to get there, which again- Well, was, I think, I think uh, uh, interestingly enough, the question really is, could it have all been uh, uh, fleshed out in, in, a, uh, in, a, uh, uh, in a deposition or a series of depositions? And I would say, in that case, it's possible, but you know, you're always confronted with the issue, well, credibility. Right. You know, I know this person said this, but he's not believable, or yes, he is believable. Uh, and uh, so I have a, I have a, a, 
I think it's somewhat difficult to do it pre-trial. You may get a case if fits. Right. But even in the Bogaki case, we needed a whole, you know, pro- prosecution. We needed the whole, uh, I did anyway. I'm sure the defense lawyers didn't, but I did. I needed to see what is the government's case. You, you know, I always, um, one, one little great thing about criminal law that, again, prosecutors sometimes don't even realize until it's too late is when a judge grants a Rule 29 after the government closes, there is no appeal of that. It's, it's, it's unappealable. Um, yeah, and so, uh, but it's also very rare. I mean, I, it's very I, in rare. my 21 years on the bench, that was the only time I've done it. Well, you should do it some more, Judge, because they can't, <laughs> they can't appeal you. And oh, I, never, you <laughs> I, I never understand why judges wait till after the closings, because then it is appealable. Yeah, I, uh, I, I, you know, you're confronted with that. Uh, uh, when should you decide? And I think the answer is uh, uh, you should almost always decide at the end of the government's case. Sometimes. You sit there and say to yourself, maybe I didn't hear it right, or maybe I don't quite understand it, or maybe, you know, maybe it's not really the issue in the case. Uh, uh, and then, you know, and then, of sure. course, the analog, you know, our, our summary judgment motions in civil cases, because I'll tell you, when you start to, uh, as I say, wimp out as a judge saying, there isn't a case here, I should grant summary judgment, Almost always when I was really inclined to do it and I didn't do it, I wish I had done it. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Of course. Of course. We'll be right back with District Judge Charles Breyer in For the Defense next. I wanted to pause for a second and talk about how remarkable it is that Judge Breyer is willing to dismiss federal cases when so many other judges aren't, when they when there's a stretch of the criminal law, when the criminal law is being used to get at conduct that may be immoral, but is not criminal. That YPO case is a good example. YPO stands for Young Presidents Organizations. For presidents of uh, corporations, they're under 50 years old, they're really successful folks. And in that case, Um, One of the individuals, one of the members learned from another member that the company was going public and was going to make a lot of money. And so he bought the stock and sold the stock and made tons of money. Now, that violated the rules of YPO. You're, You're supposed to keep that information confidential and not act on it. But it didn't violate any criminal code because he learned about the uh, uh, information innocently in a meeting like that. And just because there's a rule that's violated doesn't always mean there's a crime. Uh, There's plenty of crimes on the book. Check out Mike Chase's Twitter, Crime A Day, at Crime A Day. He posts a different federal crime every single day and he'll never get to the end. There's like 300,000 federal crimes on the book from writing a letter to a pirate to selling Swiss cheese that doesn't have holes. I mean. Mike Chase has a hilarious Twitter account and a great book, A Crime a Day. Check out the book as well. There's also Harvey Silverglate who wrote Three Felonies a Day. And the truth of the matter is that the criminal law keeps getting expanded from the Lori Laughlin case, which would involve cheating and morality, but not a federal crime. And yet so many people went to jail. Bridgegate, which took the Supreme Court 9-0 to reverse that uh, use of the criminal code. Um, The B-Girls in Miami getting guys to spend tons of money on alcohol uh, through deceit, but not through fraud. Um, There was lying in Sean Hecker's case, again, perhaps immoral, but not fraudulent. But so few judges are willing to say so. We need more judges like Judge Breyer, who's willing to call out the government for expanding an already enormously expansive criminal code. Let's get back to Judge Breyer now. Well, let's let talk about trials for a moment um, because a lot of lawyers listen to this and you know, more and more lawyers wonder, well, when I give an opening statement, they haven't done one before. In, in, should I be using PowerPoints, digital technology, those sorts of things with jurors? Have you found that persuasive in the jury trials that you've had or, or are lawyers relying on it too much? 
No, I think I, I have found it helpful. I, mean, I think technology has uh, really advanced uh, the presentation of cases, especially uh, 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 federal white collar cases, you know, which are so document intensive. Right. Uh, and, and sometimes rather complicated. Uh, uh, that type of aid is, is, is very useful. I always let them use it. My only concern is if there's an argument over it, that is, it's not accurate or it's inflammatory or something like that, you know, I, I try to make a determination. Uh, oh, I, I get the parties to sit down and try to agree. That's right. what I really do. Yeah. Uh, you know, I don't want an argument, quote, an argument in the opening, uh, but I also want the parties to be able to fairly present their, uh, their position. By the way, speaking of technology, I mean, we're doing this interview over Zoom, which is pretty cool. Right. I'm in Miami. You're you're in Northern California. Over the past year, of course, with the pandemic, so much has been done over Zoom. And there's there's a debate in the bar about whether we should keep some of these Zoom proceedings when there's a status conference, let's say. Uh, should we do it over Zoom or should we get back to in-court proceedings? Uh, well, I, I like Zoom, uh, but I also prefer in-court proceedings. So if it, from a judge's point of view, what would a judge like? Oh, I think a judge, yeah, a judge ought to like being in court. Yeah. Uh, a judge ought to, uh, and, and you can give a lot of reasons for it. Uh, the dynamic, uh, the things that you see, the things that you feel uh, about the case, about the parties, about the relationships between the defendant and the defense or about the relationship between the prosecution and the defense. Sure. Are they getting along? Is there, is there some cooperation? Is there a problem? That's always a question. Is there a problem? So all of that is aided by in-court uh, proceedings. On the other hand, there are definite downsides, cost being remarkable, right. efficiencies of uh, scheduling and so forth being remarkable, time consumption, uh, being uh, 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 remarkable. So I would say that um, <laughs> that you have to sort of pick and choose. Status conference, really, really, I, I don't think judges should just hold on to that because they're the judge. Uh, I think that's something easy to let go. Uh, pleas and sentencing, we're now talking in the criminal context. Of course. Uh, are more complicated. Um, uh, I have done, I have done it by Zoom. I don't like doing it by Zoom. Um, Especially I, at sentencing, uh, right? Where you need to really feel well, who the absolutely. person is. But also a plea. Yeah. You know, it, it, now you do see things on Zoom that you don't on the telephone. You <laughs> yeah. know? Right. Uh, and I have, I have stopped, oh, I would say a small number of pleas going forward because it's clear the defendant was reluctant or didn't understand it or, uh, or you know, or, or had certain reservations about it. So I just stop it. Now it's easy to stop and say, we'll do it next week. Yeah, yeah. We'll no, that, that, makes, that makes sense. You know, a minute ago, you mentioned um, these big white collar cases and the huge number of documents. And, and there's more and more of that. When you were doing white collar defense, um, you know, it just seems like the cases have grown exponentially in terms of how many documents there are in a case. And a lot of these big criminal white collar cases seem like civil cases now with the amount of uh, document dump you get. And so I have been pushing and I know the criminal bar has been pushing uh, with motions for early exhibit lists from government, from the government. So at least you can identify which documents from these five million are is the government going to use. What's, how do you feel about those kinds of motions? Do you get involved with that kind of thing or do you let the party sort of hammer it out? Well, uh, the answer is uh, yes to both. Uh, the, uh, uh, I, I think I'd start with the proposition that no matter how large the case is, in terms of a genuine conflict over what are the documents, it's minimal. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, there are the five or 10 or 20 hot documents that that but for those 20 documents, there wouldn't be a case. They just couldn't prove it. Right. I mean, maybe they prove it through testimony, but not through not through any uh, any documents. Yeah. So that's what's key. Now, 
it's unusual that the parties don't know that on both sides. I mean, they've sort of figured that out. But there is the universe of documents which uh, make it almost impossible either to uh, defend against or, or prosecute. And as to that, uh, first, I like the parties to agree. Secondly, I do order early exhibit lists, which, uh, you know, I, I tell the, the government, it sort of starts out this way. We have this conversation, which most U.S. attorneys don't like. I said, well, you know, you've now brought an indictment. So I assume you're ready to go to trial in 70 days. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, then they they're like sort it. of a, oh, oh, well, judge, oh, it's complicated. You know, you get sort of a hemming and hawing. They're not ready. I always love the thing where they turn to defense. They're not ready. <laughs> yeah. Now, uh, usually uh, defense attorneys say, that's right. We are, we are not ready. That's right. We are not ready. Well, it's true, uh, right? Because because the prosecution has investigated the case for four or five right. years and, and the defense gets the indictment and all these documents. It's hard to get ready quickly. Right. However, I have come across a few defense attorneys who, what I say, call the bluff. That's right. <laughs> they say, oh, well, OK, but we're ready. Or we'll go to trial. And then and then you do get a lot of a, sort of a flurry of action and you get exhibit lists and so forth right. relatively early. We've had very little success in our district of getting what I would call early exhibit lists. We've tried. I mean, especially you get into a RICO where where there are other predicate offenses and so forth, all sitting out there with thousands of documents. And I'm not even talking about quote, white collar. I'm talking about gang related activities. Yeah. And yeah. and that's that's tough. That's right. a, that's a lot of materials. You know, Judge, I, I've spoken on the show with so many criminal defense lawyers about the decision to call the defendant to the stand. And and obviously that's the biggest decision at trial. And some defense lawyers say you got to do it, especially in a white collar case. Many say it, you can't because then it comes down to your client. Um, you've been a criminal defense lawyer and, and a judge. Do, should more defense lawyers call their clients to the stand or, or you know, what should we be doing with that? Well, well, look, uh, I mean, that is uh, here is here is a nice equivocal answer. It depends. Of course. But what does it depend on? I think it depends first on how credible your client is. Can he uh, can he uh, uh, respond to cross-examination, what will he look like? Will he be sympathetic? Will he be arrogant? Will he, uh, you know, all those things. And so I'm, I'm a great believer as a criminal defense lawyer in doing some jury work and putting that person in front of a uh, some type of panel uh, because you can't necessarily rely on your own judgment. Right. You know too much and you're not a juror. You are a, uh, you're a lawyer. We like getting know? the secretaries together in the office oh, and absolutely. watching the client, you know. Absolutely. Absolutely. So you, you have to you have to, you know, you have to do your work in that regard. And then I think the answer is, is the case really weak? Yeah. If the case is really weak, then it's then it, it's questionable whether you ought to. Uh, what you said makes absolute sense, uh, uh, which is that, uh, uh, you know, that there are cases that you might want to do it. There are cases that you might not want to do it. Uh, be careful because you're right. This is your point. Uh, once you put your client on the stand, that's it. It becomes, it beca that becomes the case. I don't care what happened before and after, unless it was so dramatic, right? Bodies right. everywhere. You know, you're, yeah, it doesn't really make a difference, but, uh, uh, you know, you, it, it becomes a defendant's case to win or lose. So back in the day, people said when Edward Bennett Williams was in trial, it was must-see uh, courtroom TV. Everybody had to go see Williams in trial, F. Lee Bailey, others. People went to go see these guys. Was there anybody when you were a practicing lawyer before you became a judge that was must-see courtroom stuff? Or, or today, who do you think is the are the lawyers? Well, I'm going to say, stay out of the battle for today. Yes. I'm going to get, as soon as I say something, they'll <laughs> say, what about me? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, so, I would say, no, I will make one endorsement. Uh, right across the board, which is I have found the level of representation coming from the Federal Public Defender's Office to be outstanding. The best, yeah. Absolutely outstanding. So as a group, and there are individuals in it, I would say it is always for me a pleasure 
uh, watching those lawyers. But in, as you refer to the old days, I mean, there were people, there were, I mean, I did see Edward Bennett Williams. Uh, he, he represented, you could ask John Sale about this. It was one of his more painful moments uh, because he tried the case against, against uh, Conley, the Secretary of the Treasury, right. and Edward Bennett Williams represented him. Uh, and uh, I'll, I'll save the, uh, the, the suspense of the outcome. Uh, I think it was a two-word verdict in that case. Yeah, two-word yeah, two verdict. It was. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the, um, uh, but there were, I mean, Edward Bennett Williams was great. Uh, 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 Vincent Hallinan uh, in, in San Francisco was great. James Martin McGinnis. There were a number of really wonderful uh, defense lawyers uh, trying cases. I, as a law clerk, uh, uh, my first federal case just sitting there watching was the uh, was a what would have been the equivalent of a RICO case today. It was a gambling tax. There was a whole bookie operation in Northern California. And uh, the the federal nexus was failure to pay a $50 stamp, oh. a gambling tax stamp. And uh, so this massive case went forward with Vincent Hallinan and James Martin McGinnis and so forth. It was great. Great. I saw I saw that you dismissed a case where there was no federal nexus, where uh, you, you pushed the government quite a bit on this. And, and, and finally, I think you said something about aren't there enough crimes here? What do you have to go overseas and, and worry about that for? I mean, it does seem like the government has tried to push uh, the bounds of what it can prosecute. Yeah, I think what, what bothers me is that sometimes the government looks at a set of facts and says, and you want them to do it. Can we prove it uh, without looking at, uh, at the considerations? Do we, is this an important prosecution for us to bring? Right. For us to bring. Yeah. And, and if the answer is yes, of course you need to know whether they can prove it or not. But that, that's, the inquiry should be, is this really a federal offense that, that justifies bringing a case in this district? We're going to take a short break and we'll get right back to For the Defense with Judge Breyer next. Wow, what an unbelievable statement by Judge Breyer that prosecutors should think more about whether this is the kind of case federal prosecutors should be bringing in our criminal justice system, not whether it technically meets the elements or they can prove up the facts, but whether this is the kind of case we should be bringing. And we see very few federal trial judges raising this issue. More and more cases get to the Supreme Court and they're getting reversed nine to zero. We talked about Governor Bob McDonald's case in season one. I raised Bridgegate uh, at the first cut in. Bridgegate involved immoral conduct, no question about it, closing the George Washington Bridge as political payback. But whether that was a federal crime or not, I mean, Justice Kagan wrote for the 9-0 court that it jeopardized the safety of the town's residents, but concluded not every corrupt act by state or local officials is a federal crime. But very few trial judges are willing to go out on a limb and dismiss a case. That's why Judge Breyer is such a gem. We need more like him, more judges to get involved and say, this is wrong. The new case that's being brought in Miami and, and really all around are these Venezuelan corruption cases where Venezuelan citizens are accused of bribing Venezuelan public officials and uh, to make lots of money. Now, what that has to do with the United States? Absolutely nothing. But if they open a bank account here in the United States, they're getting prosecuted for that bribery in Venezuela. Absurd. What? Why should we be bringing those kinds of cases here in the United States? But that's the latest kind of crime. And judges aren't dismissing those cases. We're going to have to wait till one works its way up to the Supreme Court. In any event, let's get back to Judge Breyer in For the Defense. You know, one, one thing that has always troubled me about the criminal justice system is that we keep certain information from the jurors. For example, we keep from the jurors the potential penalties in the case, even when there's a minimum mandatory. So jurors are told, don't worry about the penalties. It will be up to the judge. In some cases, it's not up to the judge, right? In some cases, your hands are tied. You have to give a five or 10 year 
minimum mandatory, shouldn't we let jurors know, um, look, if you find this guy guilty, um, Judge Breyer is going to sentence him to 10 years in prison? Well, uh, and I think my reaction will be the reaction that you'll get from any federal judge, which is no, <laughs> to be, to <laughs> yeah. be uh, direct. Shocker. And, and, and because really what you're saying, in my view, is you are inviting jury nullification, uh, and which is always a possibility. But now you're supplying the justification for a nullification, which is notwithstanding the facts. Uh, do, should this person go to jail? Should this person go to a jail for a defined reason? Now, interesting, the, uh, the, uh, the, Texas, the Texas state courts, I think, do have a system in which the juries uh, set the sentencing. That's right. Uh, and there have been studies, and I, they may be, uh, they may be uh, uh, somewhat uh, very anecdotal, of where judges have written out what they think in Texas, what they think the sentence should be, and then they've tested it, compared it to what the jury's, jurors come in. And uh, it's, uh, I don't know the results of that study. But, but if, uh, we trust, if we trust jurors on guilt or innocence, maybe we should trust them more on, on at least recommending a potential sentence um, to the judge after, after a verdict. My prediction is you wouldn't like it. <laughs> My, I, I think, I think in, in cases, uh, you know, they have nothing to compare other than their general sense of what's fair. And whatever one thinks about the guidelines, and there's a lot to be thought about the guidelines, or maybe too much or too little, uh, uh, I'm not sure I want a sentencing uh, system that would depend on the individual uh, jury to come up with a recommendation. Well, I guess I'm just trying to figure out how can we get more trials, because trials have plummeted, Judge. I mean, and, and so, so, you know, we look back to before the guidelines were passed. And there was about 20% of cases going to trial. Now we have maybe 3%. That's right. And, and so to me, that's a terrible thing. Our, our, our system is based on trials and the adversary system, and we should get back to more trials. Some judges, by the way, think, no, it's good. Cases are resolving. That's, that's helpful. But how can we get more trials? How can we, how can we get back to that system? Well, uh, I, I think you're correct. I mean, I think there has been a vanishing trial and, and if you ask defense lawyers why, they will say, by and large, it's too risky. Mm-hmm. Uh, any right. number of things could happen, including the filing of a, a mandatory a charge that would carry a mandatory minimum. Right. Uh, I think, for a variety of reasons, uh, that, that mandatory minimums are, are, are uh, bad, dangerous, antithetical to to uh, our whole system of uh, justice, in my, my view. Um, I think if they were eliminated, uh, that would have the effect of reducing the risk of a draconian sentence by going to trial. I've had trials, uh, uh, proceedings, where it was clear to me that the only reason all this was being presented to me or to a jury was so that I would understand the factual context of the offense. Of course, right. And, and that's, you know, if you, in, the, in, the, in our best of all possible worlds, that's exactly what you need to know. You need to know, you need to know the why. And the why is, you know, they always say, well, motive is not an element of the offense and so forth. But the why, uh, it tells you a lot about where you should go from there. Well, that brings up an interesting point, and maybe we should just jump into it because the sentencing guidelines don't answer the why question. And so, you know, there was that marijuana case that you had where you sentenced the person, I think, to a day or time served, even though the guidelines were much higher. Um, That's a good thing, right? We should have judges who are asking the why question and sentencing without those crazy numbers that just add points up and down. Well, the crazy numbers, you have to, uh, <laughs> the crazy numbers uh, are the numbers uh, that were, uh, that were the, uh, with some exceptions, and they're notable exceptions, were the numbers that were historically imposed uh, at the time of the guidelines uh, creation, 1984. So it was, <clears throat> it was uh, looking back to the 80s, not a happy time. Uh, but maybe happier than today, uh, 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 in terms of what 
what were judges by and large, federal judges in 10,000 cases or so, what were they sentencing people to? So the guidelines were constructed in a different era, uh, at a different time, uh, and uh, they have uh, been subject to a great deal of criticism, uh, a lot of it warranted, uh, that they don't reflect our present uh, approach to. Right, and so so that people know, I mean, yeah. you've been on the Sentencing Commission, you've been the Vice Chair of the Sentencing Commission, you've, you've um, you've talked a lot and written a lot about the guidelines. And of course, the original intent of the guidelines was good, right? The intent was a defendant in one courtroom shouldn't get a, a totally different sentence in the, if he was in a different courtroom. And, and, and uh, we wanted to eliminate disparities for race and other things. But I think, unfortunately, and the criticism is, it's, it's sort of been twisted so that the sentences have all become so high under the guidelines that consistently high sentences isn't a good thing either. Well, that's true. Uh, <clears throat> our, our major concern, or I think the concern in the, in, when it was created, was uh, uh, the disparities that were uh, regional or national disparities. Right. Uh, uh, why should a person who commits a bank robbery in Omaha with the same in the same manner that it would be committed in San Francisco or Miami, receive a very different sentence. Uh, uh, and, and there were some classic examples of where that happened. Unfortunately, uh, what intervened in it all, which started a system of distortion, and I think unfairness, uh, were the, what I call the Rockefeller drug laws uh, and the, the advent of mandatory minimums uh, right. in, in drug cases. The, the other problem is, let's say the, the Omaha defendant got a eight-year sentence and the Miami defendant got a two-year sentence. What the guidelines seemed to do was, instead of trying to find a middle ground, um, increase the Miami sentence to eight years. And so, you know, instead of having some judges that were compassionate, judges' hands were tied so that they couldn't be compassionate. At least that's, you know, the feeling of the defense. Well, I think, that, I think that was that's an accurate observation up until the time that they made the uh, guidelines advisory. Fair enough. Once they made it advisory, that at least gave uh, 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 judges, they no longer became, I don't know whether Rakoff said this or someone said it, but I remember early on uh, uh, being told uh, when the Sentencing Commission was, uh, I wasn't even on the commission at this point, they were, they, but they toured the country and explained a little bit about it. And uh, uh, some judge, wonderful judge in, in Seattle, got up and said to the commission, you know, the next time you have, and this was at a time it was mandatory, the next time you have guidelines, why don't you make them guidelines? <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Great line. Yeah. And everybody goes, oh, you know, oh. That's an idea. Uh, so that was an idea that uh, actually carried the day uh, in the Supreme Court. They made them advisory. And since then, uh, I think you have seen in, in cases, save and except for mandatory minimum cases, uh, a, uh, a, a variance from the uh, guideline level. I spoke to your friend and colleague, Judge Pryor, last week, who served oh, on the good. commission with you. Yeah. And, and he, of course, is a big defender of the guidelines and I think a defender of mandatory guidelines. He likes the idea of mandatory guidelines. Um, should, and there is actually this, this push recently among some out there who want to get back to a more uh, mandatory system. Is that I'm putting you at odds with, with your friend, but is that a good or bad thing? Well, I think, I think, again, I'm going to give that weasel answer. It depends. Yeah. What his proposal is, and I think it makes a great deal of sense, is rather than uh, uh, to have these, you know, two points for this and one point for that, and if a, if a device is used, three points and da-da-da and so forth, have buckets. Have just three buckets where in that bucket a judge has – Complete dis when I say complete discretion, I don't mean unfettered discretion, but normal discretion to apply this, apply that. So, I think that that's that's one of his hallmarks, which I agree with. The only my question would be, if you start saying it should be mandatory, what what I call exit ramps are you going to have? Right. Where you I mean, there isn't a judge 
who serves, who hasn't seen after a year or so, cases that just don't fit, that, that cry out for a very different result. And so, and actually, I think the guidelines thought about that because they talked about departures uh, and they talked about the heartland. But there are many cases outside the heartland uh, that, uh, that would justify. I, 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 would be, I would be very concerned if there wasn't a system that gave the judges that discretion uh, to, to, uh, to vary or to depart. Well, it's interesting because in speaking to Pryor last week, he, he of course, is on very different than Rakoff's position, which are, you yeah. know, in white collar cases, Rakoff thinks the guidelines are, are crazy. Judge Pryor, and, and I think most judges, like you just said, think they've become way too complicated, that, that there's just too many different subsections, like you say, add here, two, three for this, eight for this, subtract. It's become like the IRS code. Um, and it's it's very hard for the parties and the courts to get through them, especially when now it's only one consideration. Yeah, and, and I mean, that was a criticism. One of the criticisms of the guidelines is judges have become sentencing accountants. Right. <laughs> you right. know, and, and why, you don't need a judge for that. Just appoint a special master or, or, or what have you. And, and it just doesn't work. It, it, it just doesn't work that way. You know, sentencing sentencing's very, very hard, very, very difficult. And attitudes, interestingly enough, attitudes are changing in areas that you would not necessarily think would be changing. The, the idea of incarceration and length of incarceration in particular uh, plays the role in determining whether uh, somebody will be a danger to the community or not, I think I think is just uh, empirically shown to be false. Right, right. One question I think that lots of lawyers want to know is what works at sentencing? We've started using these videos lately at sentencing where we try to do like a day in the life. Some judges tell me, I, I don't want to see a day in the life. It doesn't do anything for me. Mm-hmm. Um, some judges tell me they love them. They think, you know, they get a little glimpse of the person. What's your view on those uh, videos and do they work? I would say I had both attitudes. One, <laughs> okay. is I hated, one is I hated to look at. But I had a case involving an enormous marijuana growth and, and destruction, destruction of, you know, the, the mountains next to the Pacific Ocean where this grow took place. I mean, and, and the pollution <laughs> into, into, the, into the streams. Yeah. I mean, I, I was speaking on behalf of the trout and the salmon. You know, I, <laughs> I, I didn't know where it was. This was awful. So in comes the defense, and they say, they said, we have a video of a day in the life of the defendant, uh, a mother who was in charge of a developmentally challenged child. Well, you know, I actually, you know, my law clerks know that, that they always have to wait five minutes after I say something to get me to change my mind. <laughs> you know? I don't want to look at it. Uh, they said, Judge, you have to. So when they say I have to look at it, I look at it. And I will tell you that, that her life, her life, that is the mother's life, was so hellish, mm. was so uh, 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 so punitive right. uh, that, and, and she was the sole caregiver of, uh, of this child. And there is no way that anybody could provide the type of care that she did to this child. You know, it, it just seemed, you know, I, I know I can be criticized and I have been and probably properly so uh, for the sentence that I gave, which was a non-custodial sentence. But I looked at her and I said, she's in custody. You know, is there anybody who would, who would say, oh, I'll trade right. or I'll, this, you know, it all becomes worth it? I don't uh, ever think you can be criticized for being compassionate or, or for having mercy, Judge. And that brings me to this next order that I wanted to speak to you about. Yeah. It's United States versus Assorto. And, and it's an order where you rejected a plea agreement. The government... Uh, had the defendant sign a plea agreement where he was giving up his right to seek compassionate release later on. I'd like to read a little bit. And uh, what you put here is plainly put, its effects are appallingly cruel. Compassionate release matters. It gives courts, defendants, 
and the government the ability to account for the tragically unforeseeable. And then you list some. And uh, then my favorite part of the order, um, which is you talk about that you have a choice and it will not approve the bargain. That leaves only one question, which is why. Why would federal prosecutors exercise the tremendous discretion entrusted to them with such a lack of compassion? I mean, what an order. To me, this is this is the best that I've seen. Well, you know, that that arose during the pandemic. I mean, mm-hmm. the, the irony was that here during the pandemic, uh, 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 the government was arguing against including the right to seek, to seek, to seek compassionate release. Isn't so that, that crazy? was just unfathomable to me. Yeah, you know, I don't really understand the argument that that the government makes for for doing it. And I read your order. I mean, I just to take a step back for a second, Judge. I don't think folks understand that there are not two equal bargaining positions with plea agreements. You know, in a civil case, two companies get together, they battle it out, and they hammer out a deal. There's equal bargaining positions. In the criminal justice system, even though 97% of cases plead guilty, it's really Take it or leave it. Here's the deal. If you want it, great. And if not, go to trial. But if you go to trial, know that you're looking at 10 times the sentence that you may get with this agreement. Well, I, the, the bargaining positions aren't, aren't uh, equal. It's up to the judge uh, to uh, ensure that, that the, result, the result is a fair result. Uh, I always say the problem is, uh, do judges know? It's not like they don't want to do the right thing. No, of course. The question is, do they know? Do they, do they have enough information uh, that, that, that they can make a determination? Very interesting. You know, some districts, ours, uh, uh, allow sea pleas. Mm-hmm. Some districts, Southern District of New York, they don't. Right. And when, when I spoke with some of my colleagues on the Southern District, their argument was, well, why should we assume that the parties know what is particularly fair in a given case? They may know the case, but they don't. They, and they may be fair, but they may not. And, and uh, so they don't, they don't take the seat, please. I, I'm going to tell you, I, I have a position that judges won't like. But my position is judges can reject sentences for being too high, but they shouldn't be able to reject sentences for being too low. If the, if the prosecutor, if the executive branch agrees to that a sentence should be X, it's not for the judge to say, well, I, I think the executive is being too lenient. I, sh- I think it should be higher. Well, but I think it is a judge's role to ask why. We'll get back to the conclusion of Judge Breyer in For the Defense next. So two quick things. When there's a plea agreement in federal court, the judge doesn't have to follow it. He can go above or below that agreement unless it's what we call a C plea. That's what Judge Breyer was just talking about. If a judge accepts a C plea, that means he has to accept the recommendation of the parties. And why shouldn't a judge have to do that? If the parties agree that a particular sentence should be X, the judge should have to go with that sentence or maybe lower. And that's what I was arguing about with Judge Breyer. But many judges won't accept those binding agreements because they want the ability to investigate and look into whether the sentence should be higher or lower. Imagine if that was the case in a civil case. The civil parties reach an agreement that the plaintiff should receive $10,000 from the defendant and they file their agreement. And the judge says, no, you know, I think it should be 15,000. We would never agree to such a thing. What Judge Breyer was talking about with the compassionate release is that in one of the plea agreements that was submitted to him, it was required that the defendant not ask for compassionate release later when he was incarcerated. And Judge Breyer wouldn't go along with that. He said, why shouldn't somebody be able to ask? You shouldn't be able to give up that right. And he struck that from the plea agreement. It reminds me of an old judge in Fort Lauderdale named Judge Rucker who had these big handlebar mustache Uh, and also carried a gun with him on the bench. He was quite a character. And I had just started at the public defender's office when a prosecutor proposed a plea agreement that waived my client's right to appeal. In other words, if the judge gave an enormous sentence, I wouldn't be able to appeal it. And I was outraged. Why shouldn't my client be able to appeal? And so we went to the plea hearing 
And we told Judge Rucker about it, and Judge Rucker went berserk and asked the prosecutor if he worked for the Department of Injustice or the Department of Justice and asked him, why shouldn't I be able to appeal if the judge issues an unjust or too harsh of a sentence? And he made the prosecutor strike out that portion on the plea agreement. We need more judges like Judge Breyer and Judge Rucker. Let's get to the conclusion of this episode now. When the Sentencing Reform Act was enacted in uh, 1987, I think it was, uh, proposed in 84 or 87, uh, uh, one of the key, key ingredients was transparency in sentencing. That is that a judge would be required to set forth on the record his or her reasons for a particular sentence. And in a C plea, if the question is, well, it's a C plea, uh, that's good enough. You don't have to give a reason for a C plea. Okay, but a judge can reject a C plea. But to tie the judge's hands and say, well, you can reject it if it's too high, or, uh, but not if it's too low, uh, would lead to, it, it could, one thing it does, it's in of itself, it doesn't bespeak the reasons for it. Well, that's, so that's fair. I mean, I, 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 just, I, I, I would, you know, I may come around to your position or may not, <laughs> but I sure would never get there unless I heard what are the particular reasons and how are they disclosed? Right. I guess my my issue is, Judge, I've never seen it as a problem that prosecutors are being too lenient. Uh, so, so you know, no. I, I just don't see that as a real problem. So for me, if a, if a prosecutor is willing to agree to a sentence of X under a C plea, um, it's just weird to me that a judge would say, well, listen, prosecutor, I know better than you that the sentence should be higher. Well, I think in an individual case, that may be, you, you may be accurate. But what about in a multi-defendant case mm-hmm. in which the judge has the responsibility of sentencing all the others? And, and, a war, and, and you know, is it good enough under 3553A6 to say, well, uh, uh, these are warranted disparities? If you don't have the reasons, right? If you right. don't have the reasons, F- so fair enough. Yeah, you know, and also the public deserves to know the reasons, and in particular, Congress deserves to know the reasons. They are the people who have to set the parameters for sentencing. That's their job, not not the judge's job, and not the pro- not the executive branch, and not the judicial branch. It is the it is a legislative branch, for better for worse, because it's it's also political. Uh, right. Uh, I think but that's, that's right. their responsibility. It's our responsibility to make sure there's full disclosure. You know, I asked I asked Judge Pryor about this um, when I spoke to him. I'll ask you, you know, Judge Justice Scalia said the Sentencing Commission and guidelines were unconstitutional. It was a, it was, a, you know, he was the lone dissenter, as Judge Pryor pointed out to me. But yeah. it is interesting that we have this this body, the Sentencing Commission, um, that is is really directing the sentences for so many folks. It's not Congress doing it. It's not um, uh, the individual judge. It's it's this weird body. Is is that a good or a bad thing? Well, I think it's a good thing if it's allowed to uh, accomplish its initial purpose. the the <clears throat> The purpose was to uh, to have uniformity. Now, uh, uh, as you point out, uniformity at a very high level isn't necessarily. Uh, uh, a good thing, uh, you know. You have the death penalty for a uh, a parking violation. That yeah, you'll get you. You'll <laughs> probably get rid of a lot of parking violations. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But yeah. you wouldn't say that's a good thing, <laughs> right? Um, I think that uh, that the problem has been, and now it's even exacerbated by by uh, by the failure of uh, of the Senate and the president to to uh, reconstitute the commission. We're only we're seven people. It is a bipartisan, not nonpartisan. It's a bipartisan commission, uh, and we are awaiting six nominees. So I'm the commission. That's a frightening thought. <laughs> uh, but I can't act because they, you need four votes in order to have a quorum. Well, is it still the uh, sentencing commission that they have one prosecutor but no defense lawyer on the commission? Uh, uh, yes. Uh, well, we got to change that, was, that, Judge. Well, I'll tell you, okay, uh, <laughs> a couple of things. Number one is that was created by the act itself. Uh, the prosecutor is an ex officio member, a non-voting member 
of the commission. I think the prosecutor, it's actually the representative of the Department of Justice. Uh, uh, I've had experience now with three or four uh, in my tenure on the Sentencing Commission. And I would say it's been very helpful. Some, mm-hmm. some of them, uh, one of them in particular who's now serving now, uh, excellent. I mean, he, uh, 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 yeah, it, it's not like he's got this philosophy that is always favor the prosecution. It's a far more balancing. And he adds to it a lot uh, in terms of judgment. But responding directly to your question, I, as one commissioner, uh, would be in favor of, of having a uh, ex officio member from the defense community. Uh, all right, because, well, we're gonna make it happen. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're gonna have to do it by way of act of Congress uh, because uh, uh, the legislation as it is enacted into law does not, does not allow it. Now, we did a number of things that I think uh, would be, are helpful. We have uh, a practitioner advisory group uh, we have uh, uh, a very good liaison with uh, a number of special interest groups, Families Against Mandatory Minimums being one of them. They attend all of our conferences, all, all of our, uh, our sessions. We have and invite comments from the defense community uh, in, order to, in order to consider legislation, but it's not the same thing. Right. I, I would agree with that. It's actually not the same thing because I've seen how sausage and decisions are made. <laughs> and the way they're made is who speaks up at any given particular time and raises a point that is worthy of some consideration. That's how it happens. And so, uh, uh, you know, I, I would I, for one, would certainly be in support of, of that type of uh, uh, legislation. Well, Judge, you, you've been so generous with your time. Let's have some fun at the end of this interview. Here, here's where, where I want to uh, go with it. How many times do people call you Justice Breyer? That's what I want to know. From time to time, they do. And uh, I, I say, no, <laughs> no. But I, uh, yeah, I have to be somewhat careful not being too defensive about it. <laughs> because they'll, they'll think that, well, it, what is it? What is he ashamed of his brother? Does he have a difficult relationship with his brother? And uh, I don't. Uh, uh, I speak to my brother, uh, you know, with great frequency. Uh, and do you tease and, him that you actually have more power as a district court bench, a district oh, court judge than, yes. than he does as a Supreme yes, Court judge? Yes, I say, you know, Steve, the interesting thing is that I have, I have a lot of power over one particular case. And you have very little power over every case. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's right. So if you need, you need four other votes to do things, I don't, unless I get schizophrenic. But uh, 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 yeah, we have very different roles. Uh, and uh, and I, I appreciate what he does. So yeah. last, last uh, area for you. I, I've asked everybody this. I learned... Um, that Judge Rakoff is a dancer. I've learned oh, that yes. Judge Pryor is a drum player. What What about you? Do you have any hobbies that are interesting? I'm a, I'm a failed actor. That's uh, a, I, I heard you, you you were a Shakespearean actor. Oh, uh, I did a lot of acting. I really wanted to act. Uh, I didn't want to go to law school. Uh, uh, and uh, But it was during Vietnam. And uh, you either... You either went to a law school or you ended up in a different theater in the in the South Pacific. Well, well, a lot of lawyers are failed actors. I mean, trial lawyers, that's what we do a well, lot of times. Well, I'll tell you, I knew nothing about being a trial lawyer uh, in law school, except I did take a clinic uh, taught by a great trial lawyer on a Saturday at uh, Berkeley Law School. Uh, and I, I thought that was terrific. But before then, I was going to quit after my first year. And my father, who was also an attorney, uh, said, look, why don't you, uh, why don't you uh, 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 work this summer for a plaintiff's personal injury lawyer, a friend of his? And I did that. And I went to deposition. I went to trials. Uh, I saw how he prepared witnesses. I thought, you know, this is really fun. 
Yeah. This is great. You get to be the producer, the director, the actor. I said, I said, there is almost not a role you can't play. <laughs> well, thank goodness your dad encouraged you to do that or, or we, we wouldn't have had you. And you've been such a gem for the bench and for us lawyers. So well, thank, thank you. you uh, for us, you say that. Yeah. Thank you, Judge, for, for speaking with me today. And, and uh, on behalf of the bar, we really appreciate it and you taking the time. And, and I can't wait to hear the offline stories about John Sale later on. Yeah, yeah, okay. All right. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Judge. Thank you very much. It's my pleasure. What a cool, great guy Judge Breyer is. Down to earth, funny, willing to share stories. Just a real guy. And it's too bad we don't have more judges like him. I want to thank him for doing this interview. I also want to thank John Sale for introducing me to Judge Breyer. And uh, we'll get back to For the Defense next week with Judge Rosenbaum, an appellate judge from the 11th Circuit. I think you'll really like that interview. So thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you all next week. I'm David Marcus for the Defense.